And now, a special high witness report from the field. Uncle Weed, Uncle Weed, this is the Home Office. Are you there? Are you there? Do you read me? Calling Uncle Weed, calling Uncle Weed. Calling Uncle Weed, do you read me? the shadow of boulders that can only be described as interesting and oddly placed. I mean, I get how glacial runoff works, and it seems like that'd be the case, but I'm not sure. If that was the case, it'd be everywhere. I think the only explanation is aliens. Well, as we consider questions like this, my amigo Bob and I were on the trail, the Varley Trail specifically, up here in, in, in the scale of everything here in the temperate rainforest, well, it kind of makes you feel like a wee folk, right? Like you're a hobbit or something. There's these boulders that are si- larger than a, a large house. There's tree stumps that have been here chopped down about a hundred, more than 100 years ago, right? And they're big enough that you could put your entire tent on these tree stumps. There's big little wedge cuts, big little wedge cuts cut out of the side where they put in the springboards to climb up and chop the rest down. Those things alone are like a shelf, like a little nook. You could put little trinkets and, and you know, so on up there, perhaps a few books. Maybe you could use those logging notches as a paperwork, paperback trading post. Well, it's not a bad idea. Well, we're on the trail of Frederick Varley, and we've come up on his namesake trail, and now we've looped around uh, high above Lynn Valley Creek, sequestered amongst these interesting boulders. And we're on the trail of Frederick Varley. Well... Because there's a few things that have changed around here, but a few things have stayed the same. And these boulders are definitely some one of those things. And at some point, the old painter, Frederick Varley, he was up here with his sketch pad. And like us, he was likely well-fortified and well-fed. And we snack and contemplate questions like, what are the difference between unkippered and kippered snacks and kippered kippered snacks? And uh, get, graze on smoked oysters and, of course, a tasty beverage. We can hearken the spirit of our patron saint of the day, Frederick Varley. Here's to you, Fred. Ooh. <clears throat> and offer a few thoughts about his legacy, who this guy was, and, and so on. Pardon me while I have a little uh, sip here. You know, we've come quite a bit uphill on this, uh, this hike. We're really sacrificing for the art. So, I went to school every day here in Canada, right? Growing up, tried to be a good student and all that. And I was always interested in arts. I was always interested in museums. And never once did I hear about this guy, Frederick Varley. Now, sometimes we'd hear about the group of seven. And this was a group of seven painters who kind of put themselves together in Ontario in a collective and said, we are the group of seven and we are going to put a new face and a new identity to Canadian art. At the time, Canadian art was sort of a derivative of things in the British tradition. Some things come over from Europe... It was the days of grand portraiture and, and ooh, pardon me, seemingly stale landscapes, fox and hounds, and majestic mountains. And these arts were determined uh, to bring uh, unique sensibilities and a unique palette and a new, unique point of view to the Canadian wilds and, and discover together 
through logistical purposes like how do we get out there and learn how to canoe so we can go out and paint in the Algonquin woods to artistic and uh, support to get their uh, work shown together in exhibitions and to build a, a name or dare I say brand around these group of seven. And I love this group of seven. There was one particular painter that was known kind of as the, the bohemian, the underproducer, the slacker, we might call today. He was a little bit of a controversial, controversial character, as it were. And his name was Frederick Horseman Varley. Now, this fellow, Frederick Varley, he, uh, he grew up in, uh, in England and showed an interest at a young age in commercial art. And his parents uh, supported that and sent him off to study in the same art school in Belgium where uh, old Vincent van Gogh had studied. You know, and this, this was like uh, 1910s, right? So it was a little after uh, old Vince had been through there. And, uh, but Varley was well-educated in the ways of, of all these different French and, and uh, you know, post-impressionalist, impressionalist European artistic traditions. He, uh, he immigrated to Canada uh, at the uh, encouragement of one of his buddies, right, who had already come across and said, oh, dude, you've got to come out here to Ontario. And he goes out there to Ontario and he gets in, starts doing some work as a commercial artist and so on. And then, when, you know, he ends up in the, uh, as a battlefield painter in World War I. Now, you think of a battlefield painter. I know there's photographers and stuff that go out there, an embedded journalist, but a battlefield painter in World War I. And then I started think, looking into it, and it turns out it was even more absurd because not only is their job to paint the battlefield, which you can imagine has been going on for the Napoleonic time, well, I'm sure well before, but uh, uh, it, was a, it was a fundraising thing for the Canadian government. They thought if we put painters out there and embed in these units, then we can sell the paintings to help pay for the war unit, for the war effort. Wow. Crazy idea, right? So old Frederick, he goes out there, and uh, he is not pleased with the stuff he's saying. In those days, it was like all about painting like the victorious general over the vanquished foes, grand scenes of marching troops and, and vanquished enemies and so on. But uh, old Varley, he painted paintings like a bunch of muddy bodies, and they load them all up in one little cart. You can't tell if they're Canadian, English, German, Polish, Ukrainian, whatever, right? They were just indiscriminate bl- bloody, muddy bodies loaded up into the cart. So he sends this back to Canada. People are like, oh, man, that's not what we're looking for, Fred. We're going to have to have a talk, right? Uh, these paintings have gone on to be critical, uh, important in the realm of pacifism as well as, as art history. This is a unique situation where a person's in there, in uniform, out in the field painting, and really showing what the horrors of war are really like to the people. Uh, so... Mm. Frederick comes back from the war and avowed pacifist, comes in with the group of seven. He was already a little bit older than some of these dudes too, right? And uh, some of their very important trips who go out to the Algonquin wilderness. And you may have heard, if you're an art geek, you may have heard of, uh, of the group of seven. If you're outside of Canada, inside of Canada, we all pretend we know about them, right? If you're outside of Canada, don't tell us they haven't heard about them because to- that will totally hurt our feelings. But there's a dude who's associated with them. Uh, named Tom Thompson, and he was kind of like the uh, the the natural savant of the group in a lot of ways. He was an experienced outdoorsman, canoeist, and a natural uh, skill with a brush. He disappeared, though, after all these trips the group of seven would do, and they'd go out to these places, and Tom Thompson would take them, and they'd do all these painting things. And that's where Frederick Varley pr- produced one of his, his masterpieces, one, the one that really put him on, on the, the map, so to speak, as an um, important uh, artist. This was Stormy Weather, Georgian Bay. And it's interesting to look at this place because many of these group of seven artists have painted a view in the same bay, likely on the same day, and so on. Uh, 
so Tom Thompson would take him out there and they have all these grand adventures and it really started bringing a new palette and this new voice to Canadian art that it's not man versus nature it's man and nature all put together it's man's not a a thing opposed to nature man's just in there and this is the way that we're seeing it these are the colors that we see and this is the thing that we and the way we interact with nature it's not something to be feared it's something to be admired and respected right so uh, anyway back here on the west coast if I can shift gears for a moment actually since we're heading to the west coast pardon me for a moment Back here in the 1920s here in Vancouver, it was a pretty rough and tumble town, right? Uh, the forest I'm sitting in now where these just giant stumps, that was the days when these things were being logged. Uh, all around here, it was like uh, industrial action, right? Dudes were having tugboat races across Burrard Inlet. They would wager tugboats to see who could make it across. And the next day, and, oh my God, I lost my tugboat. The next day, they'd be racing again. They'd be winning them back. There was drunkenness and carousing. And so on. At the same time, uh, this was becoming quickly because of his economic, uh, his natural resource-laden potential was becoming a crown jewel in the British Empire. Can you imagine? As such, there was people starting to bring in, make fancy hotels, and the folks were coming from all over. And some folks realized that, wow, Vancouver, we really need to put together an art scene, if I may (laughs) put a phrase to them that probably they probably didn't use themselves and said we need to make a school we need to make a gallery we need to start having events and get togethers and so on so they've got this plan together put on the vancouver school of applied arts and design uh and they uh, brought out a professor like a guy to head up the school and he was a an east coaster eastern new new varland they knew they need to bring in a core professor to really lay it down right and really bring some uh gravitas as it were to the school and so they said, sent note out to old Fred Varlin and said Fred would you like to come work for us out here in the school Frederick you know at the time he was there in Ontario and trying to sell his paintings and he was like well shit I might as well I might as well go take this chance he'd been out to BC uh, you know he'd heard about the grandeur he hadn't been out here but uh, so he uh, he gets a ticket the school pays his ticket has enough money to bring his son out leaves the wife and other kids at home to sell some paintings and hold a garage sale to get their passage out here to uh, Vancouver and he arrives and uh, holds up at the Badminton Hotel which is now long gone now uh, you'll find a travel agent on the first floor and an office building up above but that was the site of kind of a uh, a, a notable arts uh, artist hotel. I know this from the census records, right? There's a lot of different artists who are registered there at the same time that Frederick and his son were registered there as living there. So as it go on, he would go over to the school there, and uh, they, and he, right away he started to bring this unique standpoint, this new, unique artistic view to the school. Whether rather the traditional, what was at the time traditional teaching methods. You'd do all kinds of experiments with the students. They would study meditation. They would study eurythmics, you know, all kinds of movement. They'd really bring an interdisciplinary approach to it. And then he'd bring, do things like you'd bring in a model to sit for the class. he said, all right, today we're going to sketch this model. It's all about attention to detail today. All about That's what we're concentrating on. The next day he goes to reviews all the students' paintings. And one by one, he tears them off the e- easels, throws them down. The students are all shocked. And he's like, you didn't, not a single one of you realized that the model had six toes on her left foot. Oh, that Frederick. 
students would yearn for his affection as a, and his accolades because uh, he was already well-respected, but they knew he really cared passionately, and he actively still painted himself. In fact, turned out all kinds of interesting paintings uh, of his new environment there in Vancouver, right? So his family comes out, and he gets a place, moves from the Badminton Hotel to uh, a place on, on Jericho Beach. Now, Jericho now is a very uh, lovely neighborhood. At the time, it was uh, pretty much kind of backwater, uh, not backwater in case it was unsophisticated, but it was away from the downtown core. There wasn't much going on out there, right? Now it's the scene of the Jericho uh, Golf and uh, Tennis, no, not golf, but uh, Tennis Country Club, kind of like it's a private club there, uh, and as well as kind of a a senior's lodge, but it's a place that hosts special events. And the best I can tell is, based on his paintings that he did of his own house, uh, was there's a little uh, kind of a boathouse there, and that's probably right about where old Frederick Varley's uh, house sat, right there, right? And there he would, uh, he was really into playing the classical piano, and he'd be banging out on his piano of, uh, you know, classical Beethoven. He would have students over, they'd be drinking wine, they'd be out on the beach discussing art theory, and about this wet cement feeling, like we can do anything here in Vancouver, and we have this amazing natural resource splendor around us to draw inspiration from. We don't look at his economics, we look at his splendor, and we want to go in there and immerse ourselves with it, as they did in trips up to Garibaldi, and, and they look at those North Shore mountains, and they go, we're going up to those, and sure enough, they would take ferries from... Uh, from one side to the other, they would uh, go hoofing it up there with canvas tents and well-fortified like we are up into these hills to explore and see this see this amazing world that laid out all before them, unspoiled and ready for exploration. Barley at Jericho, the two swimmers heads bobbing way out there beyond the buoys. Varley solid after a bottle of red with gaggle of glowing students, striving for direction and inspiration about how to go beyond. What is the level above, when human and nature, face and landscape, portrait and treatment are lost, all forgotten in sublime asymmetry? Vanderpant and his photos showing more than just the realness. Tell the story behind the moment. The river doesn't stop after the shutter closes. Where do the rivers without end begin? Look closely across the inlet, and you can see where we want to wander, to find the first drops of melting cascading over lichen and rock, filters through alpine moss and gravel into a ravine. The gullies collect the raw material to begin the rivers, which continue to flow until they find their end. Now blackberries grow where Varley sat. Jericho now leisure time activities, weddings for international industrialists. Sandy for blue-haired lounger, leathery from routine, 
Silhouette of gray and green, cypress to see more. Divots for Capilano and Lynn. The horseshoe's toes slipping into the sound. It only clears for the sky. Islands, headlands, fjords, and freshers. Lighthouse and old growth anoint the end of the land, give way to the space in between. Higher they climb, wooden pioneers drifted into the concrete and glass, cantilevered over cliffs, craning to see what's directly ahead. The veranda hosted parties, fraternized student faculty, late conversations with wine, moving rugged frontier forms of vocabularies of culture, not contrived but crafted, but not wrestled, coaxed from the confluence of river, sea, and land. Sit with your tools. Where were you when no one was here but the beachcombers and outliers and occasional picnickers? The ferries would carry you from Jericho to Ambleside, forays and for day of weekend holiday respite, but the more someone needs to tell the story of how the trees became logs and how the people grow into the land and emerged after exploration and surrender, well affected. The leathery woman said, We didn't talk about Varley, they just said he was different. The Depression hit in Vancouver like everywhere else. In 1930, the Vancouver Applied School of, Art, a School of Applied Arts and Design uh, asked many of its faculty, Varley included, to take a significant pay. Varley was furious. He and his colleague, Jocka McDonald, the Scotsman, they said, damn you, we will not do this. And they started off and headed, headed off and started their own school, right? The BC College of Art. This is down there, kind of in Georgia, right? It was originally an old car dealership, and now it's just blended into the endless barrage of uh, office buildings and, and so on. They went out and started their own school, and they brought in all kinds of new experimental colleagues from all over the world, and they had a grand vision. They were bringing in Austrian uh, experimental artists. They were bringing students who had been their keener students at the previous school and bringing them out as a faculty and really bring this awesome mix, right? They were so excited. But while the artistic vision was there, the the business execution wasn't necessarily there, right? And you know, it's hard to it's hard to do a thing like that. And be on one side, you're trying to concentrate on teaching; the other side, you're trying to run this business. Man, it's tough. I get it. And it really started to take a toll on Varley, right? Uh, uh, but at that time, it was also like really exciting because uh, they rented uh, uh, also uh, a studio space in the West End. This is now like a bunch of kind of um, apartment blocks but they still feel like a little village and at the time it was a little bit of a farther flung but they rented the studio space in there and in there is really when his relationship with one of his students began to flourish Vera Weatherby was her name and she'd been a, a key student and a protege perhaps to uh, Professor Varley and came on as faculty at this new BC school called Varts and their relationship became, well, more than just faculty and student. They really began to be collaborators and inspiration for one another. And it was in that studio, that West End studio, that Varley created another one of his masterpieces. This is a painting of Miss Weatherby uh, and showing her in her painter gear. And, it, you know, think about Varley's portraits, right? It was everyone who used a different technique. It didn't look like the same painter necessarily for all these paintings. It looked like he looked at the subject and said, well, should, I, should this be broad? Should this be this? How, how should I approach this painting? And there's Vera. Languid, elegant, rugged, practical, all at the same time, it seems like. 
And down these kind of hues, these kind of uh, that color, that seafoam green that some say is also a primary color. These colors pop out, and it was created now where there's just another apartment block. Another three-story walk up with a fire escape coming out the side, stucco sides. I have a picture of it, taken in Kodachrome. Everything fades and everything goes away, I know that. But somewhere, hmm, shouldn't there be a plaque, right? So... Farley was always up in the hills, and one uh, weekend he and his uh, crew were up here with their easels. They're painting up on Mount Frome, and they're looking down, and they're hiking around here in the Lynn headwaters, and they look down, and he sees a house down there. and goes, wow, man, I've never seen that house down there. So they go down to check it out. They find out it's vacant. They find out who's renting it. Turns out eight bucks a month, and it comes with a piano. Varley says that's it. He moves his family over to another house in Kitsilano. Kind of like the east side of Kits. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's a regular, nice, pleasant house, right? I know there. I took a picture of the mailbox. And uh, with a porch that looks right over across Lynn Valley. It's almost uncanny. It just lines up. Now, the trees might have been different. I might be reading too much into this. But you can't help but look right over at Lynn Valley where he lived up here and spent most of his time while his family was there in Kitsilano up here with Miss Weatherby up on the Lynn Valley. And while they were here in Lynn Valley, wow, did they make some art. At this time, the BC College of Art was in decline. Varley wasn't making much bread. He was trying to support two households. Things were not good, right? And it got to the point that sometimes, you know, the hardest pressure creates the most beautiful diamonds out of coal. And maybe this is one of those times, right? I don't know. I wasn't there. But it got to the point that he would tear backing of insulation paper off from this house there. Uh, the, and he would make his paintings right on there. Often Vera was his model, or some imaginary fantasy world was his muse, right? As he would take these kind of Asian, uh, Chinese scroll painting techniques and apply them into this crazy new land that where I'm sitting right now, right? Like if you look over bridge over uh, Lynn Creek, the bridge has moved a little few feet over to the, the side, but you can look up at this old house and see that window and say, wow, he must have been sitting right up there making that painting. The trees are all different. They've just been logged there. The mountains were more clearly defined. Now we sit amongst this forest, the second-growth trees. And it's all different, right? But these boulders are the same, like I said, right? So, he and Vera made some fantastic art. Another great painting called uh, Driana. I'm part of my pronunciation on that. It's a Hindu term for uh, some sort of state of enlightenment, right? And uh, part of my lack of nuance as well. Right there in a ranger cabin that, man, I could pretty much tell you where this one is on Rice Lake. I think it might be just about the, you know, you can see this other little cabin. That was actually built a few years ago for the filming of some movie set. But you can imagine the same painting set right on there because it's somewhere right around there, right? And she's gazing up at the moon. Uh, and you start to see where... Varley's role in painting was to fit that bridge between Van Gogh and Munch, before, between the post-impressionalists and the, and the modernists and abstractionalists, right? He'd take his subjects and he'd move them to the outside. The point of interest wasn't in the middle. The things weren't safe. The things were from a perspective painted that wasn't possible, right? You're floating up above this bridge. How can you paint that? You weren't sitting there. So you have to imagine you have to take risks as well as practice your craft, and that's what Varley did. However, life was a little tough here, uh, living in Lynn Valley, and one day, from what I can tell, man, he just packed up and split. Left the wife here living in Kits. Oddly enough, the wife, Maud, ended up living in the, Var- in the uh, Lynn Valley house. 
the uh, mistress Vera Weatherby married another painter from that kind of circle, that scene, as as it were. Um, and John Vanderpan. I didn't really bring him into the story, but John Vanderpan became. I was a photographer and became Varley's kind of co-conspirator and uh, collaborator on a lot of projects. And where Var- Vanderpan was coming from, like you know, it's still a big deal to have like a picture of your face taken with a camera. Wow, man, that's awesome. And it, but it was also easily understood that you could create a. a uh, almost identical representation of something through a camera lens. Wow, it looks exactly like that. It is the thing, right? And so he started remixing that idea and taking pictures of shadows and textures of rocks and and taking this th- pictures of spaces in between, man, that mental gray space of cities. And he would host in his studio on Robson Street all kinds of uh, little salons, as it were, where people get together and talk about this art. And the record player was a new invention. They'd come over and they'd play records and they'd hang out. And I can think of that and go, wow, man, that's almost like what I do now, right? It's a little bit different, man. The machines are different, but it's all more or less the same. And so I look at these guys and go, they're like our kind of our precursors, right, for what we're doing now. And trying to think of art in new ways for me and my co-conspirators of my own, right? So, Varley splits, and uh, he then goes into, like, goes back to Ontario, kind of funnels his way after, into years of, of just depression and alcoholism. You know, while he's living here in Lynn Valley, all kinds of important art people would come out here and visit him. He had National Gallery curators coming out, Emily Carr, who was still an up-and-comer, uh, and you know, uh, people are coming out, but like you would send paintings over like exhibitions in the Tate Gallery in London where they'd hang between a Matisse and a Picasso. And it would go, wow, man, but it wouldn't sell. There's no money coming in from this. And it's, uh, it's, that was, seemed to be a hard thing for him to connect those money-making dots out of his paintings, right? So anyway, he's just kind of bummed out from the whole thing from what I can tell. Paintings were left in London. He didn't even have the shipping to get them back. Things would go on exhibits. Would they go to Victoria or they go on a little cross-country tour and people say, oh, that's neat, but we want landscapes. And most of the group of seven was landscape painters and Farley was mostly like a portraiturist, you know? So he goes back and finds a new patron who sort of supports him and kind of lets him freeload for, you know, what I can tell, 10 to 15 years, right? Just kind of hanging out, trying to regroup. And then he, uh, then he kind of re, like started coming back to life, man, like shaking himself off and like putting himself back out there. And he made a film with the National Film Board, uh, which is like a Canadian institution that documents like our collective history. And in this film, the artist kind of plays himself. It's about 15 minutes and kind of weird because it's not a distinct narrative to it, like a, a traditional narrative anyway. It's the artist playing himself and he gets off this, um, he's coming out of the woods with a rucksack on, he's hitchhiking, a truck picks him up, he rolls into town, goes up to his little apartment, there's easels and paintings and progress all over the place, he's futzing around, just can't grab tail of that muse, goes out and buys some bread and cheese, ooh, just like we're doing now, and comes back to his studio, and getting some bread and cheese going, just by, oh my god, I got some inspiration, throws it down, gets a new canvas up, starts throwing paint on it. And in there, you start to see these paintings. They were actually paintings he was working on. Oh, this is almost like the skeleton, but radiating back to life. It's almost like a corpse. It almost looks like New Orleans Mardi Gras-style uh, art, or Haitian or something, right? It's this glowing skeleton, and it's coming back to life. And man, I was watching that little film going, wow, that's kind of what he was doing right there, wasn't it? Pardon me, 
bread and cheese. So along with the NF, the National Film Board little film thing, which you can see online too, uh, he did an interview with CBC. Now this was getting in the late 60s, and as often happens to our most talented painters, their work isn't really, the world doesn't really catch up with their work until they're later in life or sometimes already gone, right? So there's a little weird black and white CBC TV interview with the artist at home, but this time he's just uh, that skeleton, you know, like he's, he's an old dude, right? And But he's talking about saying some important things, like he didn't want to paint people if they're too beautiful. He wanted to capture and match his medium and his technique to that person's soul and really uh, uh, try to bring something out that's unique about them rather than making representations of them. Uh, so it's, it, But it's uh, you can't help but feel, man, that like he just never really felt like people got what he was doing until maybe it was a little bit too late. Now a few of his paintings hang in the Canada's National Gallery, uh, including Stormy Weather, Georgian Bay, which is really not typical of most of his work because, you know, really what he's become is he was Canada's first great portraiturist, right? There's no one really doing what he was doing uh, when he was doing it. There was people copying that, uh, doing representations of people in paint following kind of classic European techniques, but no one really did what he did before he did it, right? And now... Uh, aside from a few of his paintings, oh, one of them was stolen about last month. Uh, and every once in a while, one of them comes up in auction. There was a painting of his house there in Jericho that sold for maybe a quarter million recently. There was another one uh, stolen, but it was almost just a byline. That was one of his, along with a few other group of seven painters. They talked about how the paint, the thieves clearly knew which paintings they're going after because they took all just group of seven. So it maybe is more like a. Uh, a, a C-list James Bond villain type person who's just doing them for his personal collection in his den, which is kind of awesome. And there's a few folks around here that have Varley's in their own private collection. Uh, uh, as well as at the Vancouver Art Gallery, there's a fond. Uh, it's like a dossier of all like papers and letters and stuff like that about him. And there was also an exhibit uh, at some point at Vancouver Art Gallery with Vera Weatherby and some of the other artists that came in that scene that were heavily influenced uh, by Varley, like Emily Carr and Jock McDonald and, and a few of these others that you'll come across in, in contemporary Canadian art. But he was always this um, misfit character, right? He didn't really fit into the routine. You know, you'd be there drinking top-shelf liquor from the Hotel Georgia while he was dead broke. He'd be out there in his tweed jackets with his silvery red hair with his piercing silver-blue-green eyes. You can see him in his, in the paintings and it's even in his self-portraits, man. He kind of looks like David Bowie or Andy Warhol's great-great-grandfather. You can't help but see those gaunt cheek lines and the, and the, uh, and the charming crooked grin. I know that the guy was a little something special, right? And there he was, out here for in Vancouver for only 10 years, and was the founding professor at the school that's now called Emily Carr University of something or other. Uh, before there was a Vancouver Art Gallery, there was Frederick Varley, and his paintings were seminal in establishing this first West Coast aesthetic of what we call art out here. Before him, it was only the talented uh, First Nations artists. After him, and around that same time, was coming Jock McDonald and Emily Carr. And really, they created this aesthetic of bringing our own voice and our own impressions and our own personal documentation to this collective West Coast experience. Well, the concrete's still wet in our culture. There's still time to contribute. So your fingerprints are here forever. Almost as long as these boulders.
and hopefully longer than these trees, right? But the important thing is to remember that these characters, they were down here doing it before we even thought of it, right? And if it wasn't for them coming out here and pushing their envelope and stirring stuff up and out there partying on the beach with students and out there creating things that no one that wouldn't sell, then we would be there for us, right? We all got to have role models. So from the interesting boulders with a tall can in my hand, here's to you, Frederick Varley. You've been shooting along with Uncle Wee and his wild hiking.